BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is one of our Instapods special podcast in reaction to the news. Uh, we are recording this uh, just after noon on Tuesday, August 15th. So last night, uh, literally last night, is when the charges in the state of Georgia finally came down against uh, Donald Trump. And as we as we know, Donald Trump and quite a few other people. Um, so we're going to briefly talk about um, sort of first reactions to the indictment, to the news. Our regularly scheduled episode is tomorrow. So we're obviously going to be also talking about it tomorrow, probably go into more detail. Uh, but we just wanted to kind of um, give you an update while the news is still very fresh. And for those of you who, who weren't watching it, um, there was things were kind of touch and go through the day and afternoon and even into the early evening yesterday because there were people kind of going in, you know, going in and out of the grand jury. There was clearly something going on. Um, it had been, you, you know, there, there were a lot of atmospheric rumblings that yesterday might be the day. But you always have this thing with, with the grand jury that it is secret. It's always important to remember people who testify to the grand jury they're free to do whatever they want. They can, they can, they can say they testified. They can, they can describe what they said. Um, but that only gives you a little, um, you know, kind of a keyhole view of what's going on. Because, you know, they don't, they don't tell the witness. Obviously, hey, here's our whole case. Here's the whole story. They don't do that. Uh, it, you, they just get asked the specific questions that are relevant to them. Occasionally, uh, the specificity of those questions can shed a lot of light and either the, the witness will just talk publicly or more often it'll kind of come out through their lawyers kind of, you know, what, what they discuss. And sometimes that can, that can shed a lot of light, but often it's not much light and it can be misleading light. Um, so we really didn't know. And then kind of late in the evening, it all started coming down. And um, I, I, it's not still not totally clear to me why it shook out in exactly that way. Sometimes I guess you just want to finish it on a given day and it runs long. And that how that is how it how it goes. But in any case, um, I think one of the there doesn't seem to be a lot that is dramatically new in these indictments. The the, the facts alleged are 
I think, mostly ones that we knew, at least in their outlines. The biggest headline is just how many people were indicted. As we know, um, the federal uh, the federal indictments tied to January 6th and the coup and so on and so forth only indicted then President Trump. And then it also mentioned a number of unindicted co-conspirators. And I think it is assumed, at least by some, that those will eventually be indicted. We don't know. There's there's all sorts of, you know, kind of different priorities and judgments that can go into that. I think it's clear that one of the one of the priorities of uh, Jack Smith's investigation is that when you indict half a dozen people, the case suddenly has a lot of different moving parts, and that can slow things down. And it's been pretty clear that he sees moving quickly with those charges as uh, you know very key to a high priority for him. So um, that is you know that one was just Donald Trump, and it does. So there's there's a lot of kind of tactical and strategic reasons why you would do that, but it does in some ways create a a kind of a funny misleading picture because we know Donald Trump wasn't able to do all of this stuff himself and what often is the case with Donald Trump, which is similar frankly to mob bosses is that the the boss usually doesn't do a lot of the big stuff himself because the boss wants to keep some distance because you might get here. You might actually go on trial one day. In some ways, uh, in, in Georgia, Trump did quite a lot. He got really directly involved. Um, but there's a lot of people indicted. There's sort of like, you know, I would say, you know, half the people in the Trump big lie cinematic universe shows up on this list. I mean, you've got I think most of the people who are unindicted co-conspirators, you've got a number, you know, you've got Sidney Powell there, who um, obviously a major player. You've got a number of Georgia-specific people who are there. So we're going to we're going to kind of pr- briefly go over these things. Uh, Kate, uh, what's what was your basic main takeaways from what we have learned so far? It was interesting because we had some prior knowledge of how Fannie Willis was going to kind of go about this. Like we knew she was planning to use the racketeering statutes and everything. But the way it's come together, um, you know, under the RICO statute, which, you know, traditionally was kind of used for organized crime, but in, in more recent years has been successfully applied to, you know, political corruption, kind of white collar crime type cases. And so, you know, it's all premised on the idea that you can tie together all these like disparate crimes as long as you can show that all of it was done with an overarching attempt to, you know, pull off this conspiracy. And that kind of has ramifications that are interesting in many ways, including, as you say, you know, 19 indicted people. It's a ton of people. And, you know, she said she wants to try them all at the same time. So that's going to be quite an undertaking. Um, But then you also have the fact that some of this stuff, you know, didn't happen in Georgia. We have things happening in uh, Michigan and Pennsylvania and Arizona. But, you know, she argues that all of it was kind of working in the same direction to overturn the Georgia election. So it kind of allows her to expand her purview over, you know, what her usual jurisdiction would be. Um, 
And I think the other piece of it, which we can't quite see just from the indictment, I think this will come out more in the trial, but it almost feels a little bit like how the January 6th committee did its work in terms of, you know, her whole case is going to have to be proving this kind of overarching narrative and showing how all these little, you know, subplots and B characters and side conversations, how they all kind of redound to the same central plot. Um, So in that way, it's funny because, you know, we're on our fourth go round, fifth, if you count like the superseding indictment in the docs case. And it's like, you would think that things would be getting a bit stale by this point. But this one really feels quite different to me than the federal indictments we've seen so far. One thing that struck me, and this is, I don't know if this is just how she went about it, or if um, the you know, the law and case practices about how you produce indictments in the state of Georgia is a little different. But the format of this one is quite different. Um, and just to give you a sense of that, if you haven't looked at it, and I'm still working through the document myself, um, our other reporters have obviously been, you know, uh, knee deep in it, starting from 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 last night. But a, a, a big part of it is these little kind of independent paragraphs that describe specific overt acts. And so it's this, it's this kind of sort of pointillism sort of indictment where we're used to these uh, federal indictments um, and a lot of indictments that I know in state cases where it's pretty much just all a narrative. You know, it, there's, some, there's some introductions, this guy, here's this guy, here's that guy. And then it's basically a narrative and they get to when this happened and that happened. And again, it's this kind of... Um, I don't know, almost like you're reading Wittgenstein or something, these little like paragraphlets with each like a little header and saying, you know, on this day, so-and-so picked up the phone and called so-and-so and said, hey, you better do this. Um, and then there's a little kind of pro forma thing at the bottom that says like, and this was an overt act in, you know, in the, in the, in the interests of the, you know, the enterprise's criminal conspiracy, blah, 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 blah. And uh, part of that made it a little hard for me to quite absorb it. You know, we're, we're, we're storytelling people. There's a reason we, we write narratives because that's how, that's how our brains understand things. Um, but another thing it showed me, and I think this is real, not just the way they're presenting it, is I started thinking like, wow, I understand why it took so long. You guys did a lot of fucking work here. I mean, there's so much, so many different things going on here. Um, I almost, it almost made me wonder, I mean, it's important for us as um, observers to remember that the indictment is uh, a limited recounting of evidence you have to start a court process. You never include everything you have. Some stuff you you hold back. Uh, there's no way to put literally everything you have in there. So how an indictment reads doesn't necessarily tell you anything about how persuasive the case will be at trial because the two don't have any necessarily have any necessary relation to each other. The the indictment is not, you know, here's a kind of a rough draft of what we're going to tell the jury. But I did sometimes find myself thinking like, wow, I'm having a hard time keeping up with all the moving pieces here and you know, as you might expect, this isn't new to me, right? I've been, <laughs> I've been, I've been reading about it and reporting on this stuff for literally years at this point. Um, one thing I will add, and this is a, 
a this is a one of the people who is indicted is a woman named Trevion Kuti, and she has been uh, talked about as she was Kanye West's then he was still Kanye West Kanye West's publicist. Now, more recently. The Kanye world seems to have kind of denied this. Um, it's not really clear to me what that denial means. I just wanted to mention it. I, I think it's BS. I think she was working for Kanye. But in any case, um, probably many people wouldn't have even known who that name was. And it took me a moment when I saw it last night to sort of attach it to a story. But it was actually one of the stories that resonated with me most in the whole Georgia chapter of the coup story because it was so both so absurd and so hideous so wrong just evil like when I when I when I connected it I mean I'd written a bunch of posts about this I was like gratified this woman was indicted because here's what happened so we know that there were these two uh you know, volunteer election workers who became the focus of all these conspiracy theories about how supposedly the election was rigged, stolen, et cetera, um, in the state of Georgia. You'll probably remember there was these, you know, surveillance cameras, two African-American women. And there's this question about this kind of like um, uh, plastic, I don't know what you want to call it. Not a, It's not a bucket, but a... Um, I don't know, a big a bin, yeah, bin, like a big container, right, of buckets, of buckets, of votes. Um, and there's this question, did they throw them away? Did they, you know, some funny business where they triple counted or whatever? So one of these wom- women was Ruby Friedman. Um, and so while this is all shaking out, you know, in the same time frame as when Trump makes his call to the Georgia Secretary of State, you know, kind of at the time, while well, everything is still in motion. She goes to the house of Ruby Freeman. And at this point, Freeman has been the subject of countless death threats. She's like, you know, on Fox News every night. So she's really um, under siege, like literally and figuratively. So this woman goes to her house, knocks on the door. I think Freeman kind of, you know, opens it up through the latch kind of thing. And this woman is saying to her, you are in big trouble in within, if you don't confess to this within 48 hours, people are going to come and arrest you. She says these kind of weird things about like, take away your freedom. Um, and she has all these kind of weird, dark things that supposedly she is coming to save her from. Right. Um, and what they all come down to is you have to confess that you rigged the election or you're going to get captured. You're, you know, she doesn't, sometimes she says arrest, but obviously when you're arrested, you are arrested by, by some legal process as opposed to bad people just coming and kidnapping you or hurting you or something like that. And she's kind of saying both. And Freeman is understandably very suspicious, like, who the fuck are you? Or what are you talking about? And what she does is she eventually, um, a neighbor comes over to stand with her. So she'll come out of her front door, talk to this woman. 
Um, Freeman also calls 911 and asks the police, who at this point are in touch with her because she's a national story and she's getting all these death threats and stuff like that. She wants a police officer to come and stand there to kind of be some level of protection that nothing weird's going to happen. So they do this and eventually they, they agree, all right, we will all go over to the police station and you can talk to her there as a way to kind of you know, put Freeman at ease that she's not going to be abducted or something like that. And um, uh, Kuti kind of works on her for some lengthy period of time. And there's actually video of a lot of this from the body cam of one of the police officers of basically saying, you know, trying to bully her into confessing to rigging the election or else she won't be able to save her from the bad stuff that is going to happen. Now, you know, like, what is going on here? Like, what? Like, what? And this is Kanye West, like, publicity person. You know, like, what is going on here? And what are you doing, like, terrorizing this middle-aged woman who just who it's not she doesn't work for like the elections department. She's a volunteer. That's how most elections run. You've got a skeleton election. Um, department and brings in lots of volunteers and some paid workers to run the actual election. We know this, right? And so she's just a volunteer and she's being, ta- you know, it's one of these things where you try to, I'm sure her defense will be, I wasn't threatening her. I was trying to save her from other people. But give him your break. This is how, th- this is making threats of, of abduction, physical violence to try to, the whole thing is so ugly and so stupid and so bizarre. And now it's part of the indictment. And as, and, as, and as you can see here, as we've been saying, all these little individual pieces very much do add up to one larger enterprise. Yeah, which is a really interesting thing about, about this one, because it's like, like you say, we have the harassment of the election workers as kind of like a bucket. There are basically you know, five buckets. There's like the false statements by Trump allies to the legislature in Georgia. You've got um, in Coffee County, there was like a, a breach of the voting machines, um, which I think this is one of those stories that has gotten a little forgotten about because it's not quite as like vivid as some of the other election overturning stuff. But this was, you know, like Trump people basically just kind of identified a rural county that would have like a friendly to them election staff who kind of like let them come in and make copies and image the, you know, the hardware and stuff. And this isn't the only place that this happened, but it is one of those things where then it's like, okay, now this county has to like replace all their stuff. And, you know, it's, it's dangerous and expensive and you had and the people who kind of were in charge are like are, of doing this stuff are, are dubious and this company has since been like we would never do anything like this again which is like okay well that's great <laughs> no kidding yeah awesome. <laughs> glad that occurred to you um but you have so that's one of the buckets you've got you know of course the the calls that Trump made to various officials, the Raffensperger perfect call being kind of the most famous of those um and then you've got the everything related to the fake electors slate. And and the indictment includes um, some of those fake electors themselves, which I think also makes it interesting because kind of like the indictment has names that you would expect, right? I mean, obviously Trump, but Sidney Powell comes up in all this. John Eastman, if I was him, I think I'd be like fleeing the country by this point. You know, Giuliani is just like, these are the usual suspects. But then as you get to the bottom, it's like like you're saying with the, the Kanye publicist woman, it's like 
that's not a main character of this period, you know? And then you've got like a random kind of like state lawmaker who was involved and in, in all these kind of more minor entities that, like you say, did really despicable stuff, but it was just not like on the level of scrutiny as, you know, Trump calling Raffensperger and telling him to find votes. So in in that vein, even if the stuff isn't new, I think it does kind of do the work of getting it back into the bloodstream a lot like the January 6th committee did because the ordinary evil stuff is almost more kind of emotionally poignant than the rehashings of Trump kind of bullying people because like we know, right? That's what Trump does. That's not new to us. But, you know, having the the scene kind of written out in detail of this, you know, this Kanye publicist woman bullying this like poor woman who was just trying to like raise her hand and help out with the election. I mean, that's I, I think that bothers people. Well, it, it, as you say, it's it's something that at, at a certain level, we know Trump. We know he's a liar. We know he's a crook. And we know he didn't want to stop being president. You know, we don't have to respect those things, but we know those things. We understand them. And we, so like when he's calling up Raffensperger and saying, hey, find me the votes, it's shocking, but not surprising. Right. Because we know, of course, he did that. He And we at a certain level even understand his motivation. He didn't want to stop being president. He likes being the, the top dog. But some of this other stuff, you're sort of like, you know, Trevi and Kuti, like, what were you doing? How, how did did Kanye did 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 Trump and Kanye have a talk and they sent you on this mission? Like, it's just like you just you do. It, so I think for me, at least, that is the subtext to what you're describing. It it yields a level of sort of not so much outrage as awe because it's new. Like, why did you do that? That's so bad. Whereas Trump, we know he's bad. You know, he's kind of like an old friend. We, he's not, you know, we know him very well. And the thing you said about the election machines, as you say, this is something that kind of, you know, has, has seems to have fallen by the wayside a bit in terms of things that get talked about a lot, but you're not allowed to do that. That's a big crime. And it's one of these things where on the more on the most generous read, that's sort of like sticking up the bank, going into the vault and just taking pictures of the money. So I wasn't taking it. I just wanted to see what was going on and sort of like, okay, but you're not allowed to do that. You're not, you know, you you can't do that. And so that is a a big thing in itself. But what I will say is for some reason, this indictment, and as I said, I haven't gotten through the entire thing yet, but does, you start to see, yeah, this was a big effort. We have to change the result in Georgia. We have to do that. And one thing that I think gets gets forgotten by a lot of people, because I saw a lot of people yesterday saying, why wasn't there something similar in Michigan? You know, they they tried to do it in Michigan. They tried to do it in, in Wisconsin. Well, they did indict. Um, they they did indict the the fake electors in in the state of Michigan. But what people forget is all those other states: Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. They had Democratic governors, and the governor was a key part of this. And they also had, in most or all of these cases, Democratic secretaries of state. Now, each of those at the time had either all Republican or partly Republican state legislatures. But the point, the, the point is, it was only in Georgia 
um, and and just to back up a second in um, Arizona, even though there's a even though there is a, it was a Republican governor, the Secretary of State, the person running the election, was Democrat. So. In all of these cases, it was only in Georgia where it was a state they needed, and it was Republicans who they could lean on. Raffensperger is a Republican. Kemp is a Republican. The the, gov- the Secretary of State and the governor. So in these other cases, they're going to call up Gretchen Whitmer. She's going to say, "Get lost, dude! Are you, are you kidding? Like I'm going to change? I'm going to change the votes for you?" So Georgia is unique in that sense, but. What at least really came home to me in this indictment is you can see this is a full core press. We need to change this result. And so Trump's working the phones. They have Trump's lawyers fanning out around the state, you know, doing stuff. You got the fake electors. They're a key part of it. Um, there's forged documents because they have to say they, you know, they, they're misidentifying themselves in documents that, that, that they draw up. And clearly part of it is we need to get that woman, Ruby Friedman, to say she did it. And what I think they know is, is that if they could have even gotten her in a moment of duress to say something when she was terrified, even if she took it back later, that would have been enough of a hook. Whoa, she, she, she admitted it. Now the deep state got to her and she changed her mind. The RICO statutes in general have often had a bit of a, I wouldn't say cloud over them, but they do give prosecutors the ability to, to do a lot of things. But you can really see here that this is what it's for because these people were all working on the same thing. They were working together. They were in communication all to one goal. And so it's not just like, oh, you showed up at this woman's house and like, you know, bullshitted her or something like that. It's part of a larger thing. And that's really the, it's really the truth. Yeah. So one thing that I thought was really interesting about the indictment is that Mark Meadows was charged, which is something we haven't seen in other indictments yet. And kind of the conventional wisdom of everyone from like, you know, a, a chucklehead on Twitter to Trump himself is that it's because Meadows has flipped and is kind of offering all this help to the various prosecutors to save his own skin. Um, you know, here he is not among kind of the most charged, you right. know, he hasn't reached like Giuliani levels. Um, yeah. There's, there's just a couple, um, one of which is kind of related to um, helping set up one of these like pressuring phone calls type thing. It's, um, you know, a little bit more tangential, but it's interesting because Really, everyone has thought that he just like flipped early and often, right? That he was going to do whatever he could to kind of keep himself out of trouble. And this is not to say, you know, because he's been charged under the indictment that he couldn't flip as the process goes along, that this couldn't kind of work to maybe like freak him out and then have him be like, okay, 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 here's everything I know. So, you know, that's not necessarily where we are right now is not like a permanent state of being. But right. it is interesting that, that his name showed up there. It is, and one thing I would, and another name like that 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 caught a decent amount of attention in the Jack Smith indictment, and who was among the unindicted co-conspirators is Jenna Ellis. There's been a lot of question: Did she cooperate? Because how, you know, kind of how can it be since she was basically operating as Rudy's right hand, seemingly through most of that? Like, how could she have been have occupied that space? 
and not been one of the unindicted co-conspirators in in the other thing? Like, how did she how, how does she not show up? The other thing to keep in mind with Mark Meadows is that you can only flip if you got something to flip. Right, you you need to, you need to you need to have something that 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 the prosecutor wants and that you can give and that you can trade for some level of of immunity. Um, so that's what occurs to me, and it, and it um, again, I don't know, I'm not that familiar with. Um, I don't know all of Willis's previous cases. I don't know exactly the unique dimensions of the criminal justice system in the state of Georgia. But looking at these 19 people, you definitely get the sense she she wanted to bring everybody in, right? I mean, this wasn't kind of like, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on Trump and Giuliani. They're the masterminds. Uh, there's a lot of people on this list, and so it does. I think. There are some cases where prosecutors um, maybe have someone who's not a major player, um, but if they do come in and just sort of say, "Be honest, cooperate," even if even if they didn't really add to your case, you can say, "Okay, you know that person cooperate. I'm not going to charge them. It's it's marginal." And again, just from what we can infer from the list of names from the from the indictment i don't get the sense that she went into it with that um with with that um in mind and it's also i also i don't know to what extent um some of these people maybe didn't take this investigation as seriously as they took the federal investigation um i don't know i don't know whether that's true i don't know why it would be true uh it's there's a um Republican governor, but I believe the governor in the state of Georgia doesn't d- doesn't have pardon power. So it's right. not it's it's not like you can say, well, it's a Republican state; they'll take care of me. I'm not going to worry about it. But there's a lot here, and w- one other thing, I guess, before we we finish up, is she's saying that she wants to try to um, uh, have this trial within six months, and you can look at the calendar, and within six months puts it right around the time of at least, you know, a January trial is what is uh, tentatively, you know, looks like it's uh, what's being asked for in the, in the federal indictment. So I don't know how that, you know, how that all plays together. Yeah. And an interesting wrinkle there is this might be the only indictment that we see the whole thing, that it's televised because Georgia has very lax rules about cameras and courtrooms. And it's more, um, you know, in the kind of transparency vein that a judge has to kind of have a very good reason for barring cameras, which traditionally have been things like, you know, when there's a a juvenile victim involved or, you know, a sensitive thing like that, um, which you would think it would be much harder for a judge to kind of make that make that argument in this case, especially because I think kind of countervailing forces would probably argue that there's significant public interest in this case. Um, and whereas, you know, in in federal uh, criminal proceedings, you, you can't have any cameras. So we, that's like a foregone conclusion. We're not going to have that. And we've only really seen, you know, kind of a flurry of like still photographs from when Trump goes in for his arraignment and everything else. But in Georgia, you know, it could start as early as the arraignment that we see the whole thing televised. So, you know, just an, an, an added layer here, especially if, like you say, the the six month 
thing proves feasible and the trials can start then. And as we've said before, he's going to be facing a schedule that's like, you know, Iowa caucus then has to go in in the afternoon. And in Georgia, we might have just continuous coverage of all of these things for us to like watch with our own eyes. I, I One thing I'll add to that, I do think these trials have, along with a lot of other stuff, are putting renewed and big pressure on that federal practice of not allowing a lot of not allowing cameras in in federal courts. In fact, I think it is it seems unlikely that it will change in response to this, like actually to have these be televised. But there's a big push now of sort of like it is not right that these trials are obviously of great public import. And it is just not right that people are not going to be able to watch themselves. And um, it is, it's, it's not universal at state level, but it's, it's pretty widespread, at least as a default. And, uh, you know, often it's left, left to the individual judge. As you say, there's kind of judgment calls about, I mean, you know, first of all, the vast majority of cases, no one wants to video, you know, no one wants to, to, to televise them at all. Um, but I think it has made the federal practice seem increasingly precious and archaic. And ironically, one of the things that has really increased that pressure is that as a COVID, and you would know this since you covered this for for us, as a COVID, you know, workaround, they started doing audio casts of Supreme Court hearings. And that was that was a big deal. That was, you know, that was totally new, but obviously you could no longer have the in-person everybody comes into the, you know, during COVID and they have kept doing that. And I do think that has that has even though it's not video, that has created a dynamic where people are saying the Supreme Court is doing it. How can it be that you can't do it in a normal trial? So I, I do, I don't think it is impossible that this may change in time for one of these trials. I don't think, I don't think it is likely, not least because you're going to have one of the parties saying, no, don't do it, i.e. Trump doesn't want, doesn't want that to be the case. Um, but I do think there is a very good chance that these cases will end up ending the practice, not because we'll, they'll televise them. But it will just create such a sense of this was a mistake, this is wrong, the public had a right to see this, that it'll end up that it'll end up changing it. Yeah, I totally agree. And also even divorced from the Trump stuff, like the way it's functioning now is just insane. Like there's no standardization among federal courts at all. You've got some that, you know, audio live stream kind of everything they do and then put the arguments up on, you know, YouTube right after it's over. And then you've got some where, you know, I'll kind of call the clerk and be like, can I get a call in number or something? And they're like, well, you know, you're welcome to like come here to bumfuck Alabama in person. And it's like, okay, great. You know, I mean, it really is kind of profoundly undemocratic. Wasn't there one case where I remember there was a it was somewhere down in the south and you you called in wanting i guess a tra- either either trial transcript or maybe i guess it wouldn't well maybe it was an indictment because it was a state level but i remember it like the clerk said oh here's an AOL address like email me and i'll send i'll send you a pdf something like totally yeah. totally just like like exactly. ra- random 
Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's just, you know, to some degree, it's like you expect that if you're interested in some one off case in like a bankruptcy court somewhere random, it's like, okay, fine. But, you know, if we're on the federal level, if we're kind of, these are the big leagues, like there's a limited number of courts, there should be standardization and there should be audio feeds at the very, very least. And I, you know, I, don't see any good reason to not have video feeds, um, except that, you know, it really does make you study up on your judge voices when you only have audio. But yeah, I know. I mean, I totally agree with you. And it's funny. It's like all this banner coverage of kind of the trials of the century with Trump. And we're going to have to do the profoundly old school thing of like relying on the the court sketch artist and whatever small handful of people are inside who usually aren't allowed to bring any kind of electronic devices. So, you know, the kind of like scattered pell-mell phrase here and there that people could kind of jot down in time. And that's how we're going to kind of form our consensus of what's going on inside this room. Like that, that's insane. Yeah, it, it can't, I think it can't really last. And, you know, if we remember that, that, um, when C-SPAN started, at first it was just the house um, for for I think maybe like maybe a decade even for for a for a significant amount of time, and I believe it was either 19, 1984 or nineteen eighty six when the Senate finally said, "Okay, you can put cameras in there." And again, there was this idea that like, "Hey, this is the Senate. Don't bring your like cameras." You know, this is serious business here. We're not like some tabloid. I mean, now that just seems like absurd. Like, what do you mean we can't see what you're doing in the Senate? And I suspect pretty soon it's going to be that way. Totally. We'll think that way in the in the courts too. Um, all right. So uh, we've, we've uh, covered a fair amount of ground. We will be back tomorrow with your regular episode. We're obviously going to talk about this topic again. It'll continue to be uh, unfolding. We'll probably get into uh, more levels of detail, uh, more things we've learned over, over, the, over the next 24 hours. But thank you for joining us. We hope you've liked this. Um, remember to uh, subscribe to our podcast and all that good stuff. And uh, we will be back with another episode tomorrow. All right. See you then. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen.